0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. In all the stories I've ever covered on my Most Notorious podcasts, I don't recall ever getting as emotional about one as I have while researching and writing the narrative you are about to hear. It's exceedingly tragic on many levels. Some credit must be given to period newspaper coverage in yanking on my heartstrings, the writers of the day were experts at jerking tears out of their readers, and they succeeded in manipulating me to some extent with the details of the story, especially poignantly with the accounts of the grief suffered by the victim's family. But even without that, even the driest account of the murder and investigation would probably have been enough to wet my eyes. Anyway, let's begin. First, the victim. Her name was Alice Matthews, a 21-year-old woman who lived with her family in a modest house at 3547 20th Avenue South in Minneapolis, just blocks off of Cedar Avenue. Her father, Henry, was a big burly man who had worked as a foreman of a sewer crew. Her mother had passed years before. Her father had remarried to a woman whom she had been recently growing warmer to. Alice had four siblings, all younger, but the one closest in age to her was 19 years old, and her name was Jenny. As you might imagine, they were not only sisters, but close friends. The evening of Saturday, March 23rd, 1912, was a happy one in the Matthews home. Both Alice and Jenny had gone out for the evening, as they had a habit of doing on the weekend. It was an especially needed break for Alice who worked hard in a flour mill in Minneapolis. She was to meet some of her female co-workers for a show and some food, and then spend the night at one of their houses before coming home the next morning. Jenny had gone to a party with family friends and was expected home that night. As for the rest of the Matthews family, they had spent the evening listening to music on their phonograph and had told stories, and what appeared to be a very festive and happy night, and it would be their last four years to come, with the horror that would soon beset their household. At about 11 p.m., the family retired, all except for the father, Henry Matthews. He adored his girls, and while he knew Alice wasn't coming home that night, he was nervous for Jenny's return and couldn't sleep. Finally, she came home at about 1 a.m., tired but giddy. They chatted for a bit as she shared the details of her evening with her dad. And they both went to sleep soundly unaware that the body of alice their sister and daughter lay battered and dead on the sidewalk mere feet in front of their house college for alice matthews had never been in the cards it was rare for a woman of a working class family in 1912 to have those kinds of aspirations heck even the right to vote hadn't been granted yet for women although the suffragists were working hard to change that. But by all accounts, Alice was a very happy young lady. She had a regular job, which contributed to the family income. Her specific duties in the Pillsbury Mill, where she worked, was packing flour into small bags for retail sale. She was loved by her co-workers and had a reputation, the Minneapolis Morning Tribune reported, above reproach. All of her friends were women, and she was never known to have had a boyfriend. Earlier that Saturday, Alice's friend Ida Belfie had called on Miss Matthews and invited her out for the evening, also offering to let her stay the night with her so Alice wouldn't have to catch a streetcar home alone. Alice, as always, notified her parents of her impending outing. But as the young women went out regularly together, Mr. and Mrs. Matthews thought nothing of it. The two friends met a third girl named Minnie Morgan at Vogel's drug store at Hennepin and Washington Avenues at 8 p.m. that night. When the trio headed over to the Isis Theater on Sixth Street for a show, while there, Alice notified Ida that she would go home that night instead of staying with her. Once the performance was over, they all went to a Chinese restaurant called Yun Fang Lo Yi Sing at 28th Sixth Street known colloquially as chop suey shops. These restaurants were highly popular amongst young people during the era and equally reviled by their elders, who believed that they were breeding grounds for crime. Once they'd finished eating, the three went again to the intersection of Hennepin and Washington, where Ida and Minnie watched Alice board alone, a Cedar and Camden southbound streetcar, At 1106 p.m. From there she headed towards home. Once the car reached the stop at Cedar Avenue and 34th Street, Alice disembarked. The police would later wade through stories about who Alice had or hadn't talked with on that car or more ominously had followed her as she had made her way home in the pitch-black night. Here are the known facts. She had to walk three blocks east and almost two blocks south to her house, a route she had followed innumerable times. Shortly after 11.30 p.m., a woman named Mrs. H.C. Thomas, who lived with her husband at 3541 20th Avenue, heard something outside that pierced the black night. I had gone to bed shortly after 11 o'clock, she recalled, and must have been asleep, possibly 14 or 20 minutes her scream awakened me I suppose and I heard a girl's voice say please let me go please let me go the words were repeated twice and then all was quiet I got out of the bed and went to the front window I could see nothing and thought the screams were probably uttered by some children in the neighborhood who were palling or on their way home from some party a quick note The time of the screams would later be confirmed by Mrs. Thomas as sometime after 11.30 p.m., but probably not before 11.45 p.m. What prompted her to change the time is unknown. Perhaps she had not paid attention at the time, and someone in her family or possibly a neighbor might have helped her clarify things later on. The time of the scream is one of the more important aspects of the later investigation of the case. The homes on 20th Avenue sat up on a small embankment, by the way. In fact, the ones on that block that are still standing continue to sit up the same way above the sidewalk, which is cement now, but in 1911 it was made of dirt. Little did Mrs. Thomas know that the screams were coming from in front of her house at the embankment's base. She could never have seen the body from her view, Two houses further down was the Matthews residence. Alice had almost, almost made it home. Another neighbor across the street, Mrs. J. Larson, at 3518 20th Avenue, was at home with her 15-year-old son, Werner, when they heard the cries for help outside. They stepped out onto their front porch to investigate and listened to Miss Matthews' struggle with her attacker. Again, they heard the same words, please let me go, please let me go. Mrs. Larsen ordered Werner to run to their neighbor's house and call the police, as they had no telephone. We could not see anything in the darkness, she later remembered. Werner ran next door to the G.W. Tibbetts home, told the couple who lived there what they'd heard. Then Werner went back home where he and his mother waited on their porch but heard no more sound from across the street. The next day, Mrs. Tibbetts told the paper of her experience that prior night in what seemed to be the most detailed account of what might have happened. Werner Larsen, who lives next door to us, is the boy who gave us first word of trouble. There are two men in the Larsen home and both were at home, one awake, but the boy was sent over To tell us that a woman had screamed from the street and that there must have been sounds of a scuffle my husband was sick in bed so my daughter and I went out toward the spot from which the scream was supposed to have come when quite close we saw a form half rise from the shadow of the bank which rises from the sidewalk we were afraid that it was someone waiting to spring upon us so we retreated to the house my daughter entering first. She telephoned, asking the operator for the police. She was connected with police headquarters, where she was told to call Calhoun 887, the Minnehaha station number. Before she could resignal the operator, the operator called that she would make the connection. She did. My daughter told the man that there had been a woman scream and that we had seen someone, apparently a drunken man at 20th Avenue and 35th Street. He said that he would send a motorcycle man. My daughter did not give our name or number. Shortly afterwards, we saw a man on a bicycle at 35th Street, but as he did not wear a uniform, we were afraid to call him. He soon went away. The first call was made at 11.55 by our clock. The next time I called about 12.30 a.m., I think. We could still hear someone moving in that black space where the body lay. Every time we opened the door, we could hear the sound. I called the Minnehaha station and reported again, mentioning the woman's scream and saying, however, that like as not, it was a drunken man. This time, I not only gave our house number, but the number of the house in front of which the body lay. For an hour, we waited, the light in the front room burning brightly, the curtain up and one of us always at the window. The police said the second time that a man... On horseback would be sent. But he did not come, and at 1.40 o'clock, we put out the light and went to bed. The next morning, Eva Tibbets awakened, looked out the window and told her mother that the figure was still lying on the sidewalk. The mother dressed and went outside. As she neared the body, she noticed it wasn't a drunken man, but instead a dead woman, and her head up against the base of the bank. There was dirt kicked up everywhere around the body, Evidence of a terrible struggle, she called for Mrs. Thomas and they identified the body together as Alice Matthews. Mrs. Tibbetts made the difficult walk to the Matthews home, where she had to tell Henry Matthews that his daughter was dead outside. My God, I could not understand it, Mr. Matthews told reporters. I ran out and down the street. There she lay dead and covered with blood. "'I can't tell you how I felt or what I thought. "'I can't understand how such a thing is possible. "'What kind of brute could do it? "'I think the police will get him. "'I'm going to trust them to hunt down this man.'" This time when the police were called, they had no troubles finding the scene of the crime, and it was a gruesome one. Miss Matthew's lips were swollen from what appeared to be a severe blow to her mouth. Her throat was scratched and bleeding, And her clothes were shredded the result of a monumental fight in one of her hands was a broken hat pin evidence she'd used it as a weapon and in the other hand she was holding her purse proof the police determined that she had been taken by surprise although it wasn't explained exactly how the nails on her hand were torn for whoever had done this to her it certainly hadn't been easy for them and detectives figured they'd probably sustained their own injuries, like scratches to the face based on the condition of Alice's nails. The police proceeded in canvassing the neighborhood, assuming that the murderer probably lived in the area as he'd ridden to the end of the cedar line with her. They questioned two conductors who'd been working on the car that night, but while both remembered Alice Matthews, Neither could recall any man sitting next to her or getting off at her stop. Detectives also spoke with Ida Belfi and Minnie Morgan, whom Alice had spent the prior evening with. They both confirmed that they were intimate friends with her, and she'd never confided with them about a love interest, ever. Meanwhile, an autopsy was conducted at the University of Minnesota by Dr. H.E. Robertson. It was shown conclusively that the cause of death was strangulation. She'd been choked. The doctor suspected she'd been sexually assaulted as well. One of the more tragic aspects of this case had to do with Jenny, Alice's younger sister. Again, she had arrived home at about 1 a.m., chatted with her father, and then retired for the night. The next morning, Jenny not only had to deal with the incredible despair resulting from the loss of her sister, but tremendous guilt as well. As she'd walked down the sidewalk towards home that morning, she would actually brushed against her sister's body, but had believed, like the neighbors had, that it was a passed out drunk and hurried by, frightened. While family members tried to comfort her, Poor Jenny could not shake the guilt that she might have been able to do something, despite it being highly unlikely that her sister might have been still alive at that point. By the next day, the city was in an uproar over what had happened. Minneapolis Mayor J.C. Haynes had already reprimanded officers in the 6th Precinct Minnehaha Station for botching things up. Lieutenant Johnson defended himself and said that he'd been the one who had answered both of the Tibbetts family calls. There was no mention either time he claimed of the address or a woman's scream. It was just a general location, the intersection of 20th Avenue and 35th Street, which, by the way, was only a half a block away from the body. The obvious question off the top of my head is why a police officer answering an emergency call couldn't have just asked for the address, even if he'd forgotten the first time There was a second call where he could have collected that vital piece of information. Without an address, why couldn't the dispatched policeman have been instructed to expand his search beyond a single intersection? Anyway, Lieutenant Johnson sent a motorcycle officer named Olson to 35th and 20th Avenue, who wore the standard-issue corduroy motorcycle coat and a uniform cap. Before Olson had returned... The second call came in. Johnson considered sending a horseman, but once Olson came back and reported that he'd found nothing, Johnson hadn't bothered sending an officer out for a second time. Mayor Haynes was none too pleased with Johnson's explanation. Lieutenant Johnson should have taken the second call as additional proof that there was something wrong there, he told reporters. He should have sent the horseman. The police get a great many calls on Saturday nights, telling them that there is a drunken man here and there, and often they find on arrival that the man has made off with himself or that friends have cared for him. The mayor censured Johnson as punishment, stating that while the lieutenant was partially at fault, an extraordinary combination of circumstances was mainly responsible. Then he offered a $500 reward from his own contingent fund for information leading to the arrest of the murderer of Alice Matthews. So the pressure mounted for the police department and they acted swiftly to try and alleviate local fear. They continued their intense canvassing of homes in the area. Within that first day, as a result of their neighborhood dragnet, police had arrested a suspect, a man named Benny Brock, who was found with fresh scratches on his face. They would arrest him on a vagrancy charge while the police forged on with their investigation. Later, Brock would be cleared of suspicion and released. This pattern would continue over and over the next few days. Anyone who they found who lived in the general vicinity of the murder and appeared to have facial wounds was brought in and interrogated. Jenny Matthews also had another story to tell. About four weeks earlier, she and a girlfriend had been chased by someone down the street, someone apparently rough-looking and extremely drunk. Other clues poured in about strange men wandering around the neighborhood late at night, about moonlit arguments between men and women in back alleys, and about a mysterious mulatto negro, to use the heavily weighted terminology of period newspaper accounts who had been causing trouble in the area. One woman in particular, named Mrs. Ethel Manning, claimed that this man had accosted her days earlier, not far from the Matthews house. As we would learn later, what he had done was attempt to strike up a conversation with her, and it was frightening enough for Mrs. Manning to report the incident to the police. Residents were now very afraid, and it seemed as though Every uncomfortable encounter faced near that area of Cedar Avenue was being reported to an overwhelmed police department. Detectives thought tracing Alice's route that night might be the best way to solve the case, and they honed in on her streetcar ride. But multiple passengers came forward with contradicting stories. One was the aforementioned Mrs. Ethel Manning, She had pointed out that she'd seen that same African-American man again, that night, in the same car as Alice Matthews. Miss Matthews sat across from me on the right side, she explained to the Minneapolis Tribune. She was alone when I first noticed her. A man of dark complexion, whom I think must have had Negro blood in him, was seated on the same side of the car with me. Suddenly he said to me, Pleasant weather, isn't it? I did not answer, and he made several other attempts to talk to me. I looked at him at last, as much to tell him I didn't care for his company, and he stopped his forced attentions on me. Near Seven Corners, just as we were passing Peterson's Drugstore, he crossed over to the other side of the car and sat near Miss Matthews. I know it was Miss Matthews because I had seen her before with her friends, Miss Morgan and Miss Belfie, on the east side. Also, I recognized her from her picture printed in the Tribune. The man began to talk to her. I noticed I could see her lips move. Whether she spoke or not, I do not know. He was dressed in some dark suit with a light gray overcoat, wore a derby hat. He had a half-moon scar on the right side of his face, running from the corner of his eye to the ridge of his nose. I watched the two until I got off the car at 33rd Street, where I went to a friend's house to stay all night. That was the fifth time I had seen that man since January 7th. I saw him first at the Milwaukee station, where I was waiting for my husband one night. He came in and began to talk to me as he did in the car Saturday night. I got up and left him. It's hard to know what to make of this story, looking past the casual racism of the day, which could easily have played a part in all of this a woman being approached five different times by the same man, a veritable stranger, if it were true, would certainly be some reason for mistrust, some fear, especially a man with an ominous-looking scar across his face. But no one else who had ridden the car that night, including the conductors, had remembered someone of that description. And if he had been riding the car that night, Mrs. Manning admitted herself that she'd gotten off one block earlier, and had no idea whether he followed Alice. Which also seems a bit strange to me. I know that if I had been approached five times by the same person, I would be hyper aware of his or her presence, including making sure that the person hadn't gotten off the car one block later with the intent to double back. But again, this being 1911, South Minneapolis, the streets were poorly lit, and she might not have been able to see one block away. Who knows? What we do know is that Ethel Manning and her mysterious nemesis drop off from the story completely after this point. Another woman named Evelyn Anderson came forward with her own version of the ride. She had been there on the car, she insisted, and she was sure that the only other passengers on that car, besides herself and Alice, were a couple, a man and woman, who got off together at 34th Street with Alice at about 11.30 p.m no one had been sitting next to Alice Matthews. She was certain of it. It was a third account of the ride that left police really scratching their heads, an account by a very odd acting young man. His name was Elbert Savage and he showed up at the police station voluntarily explaining to them that he had been on the same streetcar as Alice Matthews on the eve of her murder. He claimed that Alice had left the car alone She walked around the car while he waited for it to pass him. Evidently, they were walking in the same direction, for when Savage caught sight of her again, she was being closely followed by a man who walked three feet behind her. She was walking briskly, and the stranger was matching her pace. They were far enough ahead that he could not make out their conversation, but it sounded like an argument to him. At about the place where Alice's body was found, Savage finally passed him. They'd both stopped on the sidewalk, continuing their heated words. At that point, Savage claimed he wasn't paying much attention to them. Once he'd crossed 36th Street, he looked back and saw them standing together still. Savage's story was off-putting for a couple of reasons. First, Miss Evelyn Anderson hadn't seen Savage on the car, as he claimed he had been neither had ethel manning for that matter secondly savage said he'd gotten home at about 11:30 p.m. which was a different time from miss anderson and the conductor's accounts both of whom were confident alice had gotten off the car at 11:30 the distance from the end of the car line to his home was seven blocks in about 10 minutes When asked about this time difference, Savage laughed and said that his clock must have stopped and he had no idea whether it was fast or slow. In another suspicious twist, Savage had returned to the scene of the crime two days later on his own. He had, in fact, found two gold cuffs lying in the dirt and promptly turned them over to the police who had evidently not seen them in their own search of the crime scene. Both were cheaply made and one was bent and twisted. When reporters asked him how he had happened to find something that had been missed by the police, and hundreds of others, by the way, who had, with morbid curiosity, traveled to the crime scene and trampled all over it as soon as it had been reported in papers, Savage said he hadn't dug around for them. He just noticed them as he'd walked by on his way to work. He'd been sort of attracted to the place, in his words, because of his special connection to the case. He was, after all, a key witness now in what had become a sensational Minneapolis crime. Savage then offered his own theory on how police might catch the killer. He believed the man would show lots of marks from the struggle. He would be badly cut up and bruised. The paper pointed out that Savage had offered no evidence to defend his conclusion. He also showed some anger when asked about the attention he'd been getting recently, especially because of his extra efforts to help out and look for clues on his own. Savage was bitter, claiming that he'd only been trying to help the police, but now they were attempting to put it on him. Much of the blame he suggested had to do with the neighbors, who had been gossiping about his possible role in the murder. The paper then went on to give a quick bio of Albert Savage. He was an employee of a sidewalk company and married with our children within the next two days more rewards were offered $500 from Minnesota Governor Eberhart and another $500 from the Minneapolis City Council combined with the mayor's $500 it was a sizable amount for 1911 the equivalent of about $40,000 in today's money and unfortunately the police were no closer to the truth than they had been before More tenuous stories came forward from various people who said they'd seen Alice Matthews talking with strange men the evening of her murder, one at a drugstore, another at the theater she'd attended that night. A group of boys playing near the railroad tracks near 29th and Hennepin reported seeing a man with scratches on his face run away from them. But all of the leads went nowhere. In the meantime, the funeral of Alice Matthews commenced on Wednesday, March 27, four days after the murder, and it shut down city streets. The intense newspaper coverage made the funeral a popular event amongst the general public as throngs of the curious packed the route from the Matthews home where the service was held to Lehman Cemetery a few blocks away. People showed up both to pay their respects and to be a witness to a part of the sensational events. The pallbearers of Alice's funeral were all girlfriends of hers, including Minnie Morgan and Ida Belfi. The family was in complete anguish, as expected, and the Minneapolis Tribune made sure its readers were intensely aware of the tragedy from the perspective of the Matthews family in typical flowery and dramatic detail in this march 28th article about the funeral just outside home it was the phrase on the lips of all yesterday they are the words that the father had used when in his first overwhelming grief he had given utterance to the cry that had surged up within him just outside home it seemed to answer the ringing question of the burial service just outside home. That was the sting of death. Not the sadness of it, although it was more poignantly sad than any death chronicled in the annals of Minneapolis. Not even the terrible way of it. The sting lay in the anguish of realizing the nearness and preventableness of it. After the final struggle that was so vain, after the unheeded outcry, After the futile attempts to grasp the ebbing life-strength, the girl's head fell wearily back upon the sod, and a strand of the loosened hair lay touching the soil that was home. There was another phrase that clung to the mind yesterday. Words spoken, words that the father, dry-eyed with a tensity of control, far more pitiful than tears, had said to the broken-hearted young sister. Brace up, little daughter, show how much Matthews you have in you. The Matthews have always been fighters. There is not a coward among them. Fifty years ago, Grandfather Matthews fought for a cause that he knew was right for the honor of his country. And a few nights ago, another of the Matthews, a mere slip of a girl, fought a plucky fight and died battling for an honor that meant more to her than the life she lost. But yesterday, perhaps, was the hardest battle that a Matthews ever fought. The battle to endure and live bravely, and in the midst of the bewilderment and publicity to which they were ill-accustomed, they were winning their fight. And while funeral-goers solemnly paid their respects, and Alice's co-workers wept silently at the sight of her body in the casket, Minneapolis police detectives had spread through the crowds on high alert, hoping against hope that the killer might see fit to show up, as killers who think highly of themselves often do. They looked for suspicious figures, but found none. And after the burial, the family returned home to face their eternal heartbreak. And the investigation continued, and the police continued to face failure after failure. What appeared to have been a promising lead, Albert Savage's account of following Alice that night, was shot to pieces when police determined that he had been on a different streetcar from Alice entirely. But this only increased the confusion because he'd taken the streetcar after Alice's, which means that he would have presumably walked past her on the sidewalk on 20th Avenue still, which she claimed he had not, which meant two things. Either Savage was lying, or Miss Matthews was somewhere else for an unknown period of time. A period of time where Savage could have walked past, and before Mrs. Thomas had heard the screams. Maybe she had stopped for a few minutes, but why? And wouldn't Savage still have passed her? But Mrs. Thomas had reported the screams shortly after 11.30 p.m. She could have gotten the time wrong. It was late, of course. In another article a few days later, she was mentioned as having heard the screams closer to 11.45, but her account did make sense on some level. Alice Matthews had left the trolley at 11.30 p.m., so it would have taken just a few minutes to walk to her house, and it was still within 15 minutes of her disembarkment that her screams were heard by Mrs. Thomas. And yes, there could have been multiple routes by which both Alice and Elbert Savage might have taken from the Cedar Avenue stop to her home address, where Alice's body was discovered. But Savage had told police right away he had absolutely walked that sidewalk. So they'd ended up at the same place, despite whatever route they'd both taken to get there. The police also, temporarily at least, stopped searching for men with scratches on their face It was now being reported that she had been, in fact, wearing thick kid gloves on both hands when found. Yes, this contradicts the first reports of her discovery when articles written stated her nails had been torn. There are lots of contradictions in reporting throughout this case, which makes it doubly difficult to determine fact from fiction. But now that police were doubling down on the gloves, They were now saying that they believed that the killer would not have defensive wounds. The bent hatpin found on her person might have left a mark, but probably not on his face. It could have cut his hands or simply pierced his coat. More articles relayed recent attacks on young women in Minneapolis in frightening fashion. Reports of girls being chased, mauled on the street, and assaulted in their homes certainly did nothing to appease the fears of Minneapolitans. A deserter from Fort Snelling named Edward Kelly was being hunted by local authorities. Bloody clothing had been found under a streetcar viaduct near the fort, including what appeared to be an army shirt, and police wanted to question him about the Matthews case. The man who had been seen by the three boys in the railroad yard near Hennepin Avenue and 39th Street with scratches on his face, and evidently still lingering in the area, was reported to be hiding in a boxcar. Once word spread, a mob of angry citizens swept into the railroad yard and hung a noose from a nearby bridge, ready to inflict mob justice on the man. Police arrived in haste, but after a search of the boxcars in the railroad yard, there was no one to be found. But the police had their hands full with more suspects. A man named John Whelan, his face full of scratches, was arrested. And yes, despite more recent reports of Alice wearing gloves, still appeared the police were not shutting that door completely. Perhaps it was because they had nothing else to go on. Whelan lived in the area but had an ironclad alibi. He'd received the cuts on his face from a fight, he'd told them, the night of Alice's death, and had checked himself into the city hospital by the time Alice had been slain and the intake records of the hospital confirmed that. A day later, and guess who was back in the news with a brand new story? Albert Savage. This time, he said he'd seen two couples on 20th Avenue as he'd walked home. The first couple, which he'd admitted to already, were the Tavoits. But a second couple in front of Mrs. Thomas's home was the more suspicious of the two. It was a man and a woman, and the man had the woman backed up against the embankment. When Elbert had walked by, the man had tried to prevent him from seeing the woman. Savage couldn't give a description of either. And while this was going on, there was more criticism being slung at the mayor, the chief of police, and their complete lack of competence in the whole affair. At least this was the general emotion. The esteemed Reverend James Freeman seemed to speak for the public when he brought his wrath down on everyone involved in the investigation. The most brutal murder that had occurred in Minneapolis in the past 30 years has been committed, and not a single word has come from any city official expressing his determination to right the great wrong that had been done. And so, things had come to a grinding halt. The citizens of Minneapolis were terrified and the mayor could only shrug his shoulders. Stay tuned for part two and the conclusion of the Alice Matthews murder. A man comes forward and confesses to the murder, not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times. But was he really guilty or insane? Stay tuned for part two.